0: we're back with an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira. I'm Luis Fertel Showbiz. I wanted to give you a little bit of a Kristen Wig drunk on the plane <laughs> and bridesmaids intro. And Aida is taking plane trains and automobiles to get here from and gig in Berkeley, but she will be joining us later in the show. But first, in what Donald Trump states is a very strong message... <laughs> Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty of rape but acquitted of top criminal charges. And he still has the LA portion of his nonsense to deal with. But he, he still does. But he was found guilty of rape in the third degree but acquitted on two counts of predatory sexual assault which both carried a sentence of life in prison.
3: I feel like uh, in talking about this we keep phrasing it in terms of whether we're happy or disappointed. And I can't even contextualize it that way because when this all began, I don't even remember what I thought would be possible for the results of Harvey Weinstein's wrongdoings. All I know is something has occurred and that feels a little bit okay. I'm relieved something happened is all I can say. I mean, we
0: could roll the tape back. Because yeah. <laughs> That's true. We've been, because we've been there for it. We've been there for this since the beginning of Keep It. Uh, he was also um, acquitted on first-degree rape of jessica mann a former actress and as well as a criminal sexual act against mimi haley um, a former project runway production assistant so two of the people you know who briefly spoke out about him obviously didn't get justice and neither did many of the people in hollywood who have come forward with their stories so it's Sort of like he's going to get charged. He will spend some time in prison, obviously. Not in Rikers at the moment. As of this, he's in Bellevue. Oh, well, he had some chest pain, as you heard. (laughs) He's in Bellevue, uh, which people were quick to tweet is not a lovely hospital. Mm -hmm. Um, However... I um, picture
3: it looking a little bit like one of those buildings they would inspect on MTV's Fear.
0: Yes. Which, by the way, didn't leave me feeling good because um I don't know if our prison hospital should be the hospital from asylum.
3: Right. Yeah.
0: It's great to think about him being there, you know, but as a person who, you know, is not really into prisons in general, it's weird to think about wanting justice for him, but also, you know, not wanting prisons to be a hellhole. Mm-hmm.
3: I feel inconvenience, though, having to think of him performing the act of chest pain like i think of you know a desperate soccer player hoping to get a red card thrown at the other team sort of bullshit right after all this time like
0: he's the one who's had to put on his whole um forgive the kevin spacey connotation but you know his little usual suspects moment right yes him walking around with his walker and now the chest pains she's doing a lot
3: Wow. Uh, For some reason, I hadn't thought of uh, Kaiser Soze in this context yet, and I'm going to say I'm grateful that you brought it there. Oh, you were thinking of (laughs) K-Pax? Always, yes. Yes. Beyond the sea, yeah. (laughs) Beyond the pale, more like.
0: Well, I'm sure there will be plenty more for us to talk about as um, Harvey's tap dance continues. Uh,
3: Yes, Uh, with or without the walker, right? With
0: or without the walker. Uh, But in this episode, we have some very exciting news.
3: It is, sh- I'm shocked for us, frankly.
0: I mean, I think
3: you know how my knives are, Lewis. You, you keep them out, and the <laughs>
0: authorities have said, please, and yet they remain. And we have managed to wrangle Ryan Johnson to come to keep it. What a fool that he would come and sit with us and indulge us, and yet, what a wonderful time. And listen to
3: my many, many knives puns right no they don't count as puns because there's not really a play on the word knife or any wit at play okay you just simply
0: add the word out to the word knife what actually Ryan already did for us in the title of his film you know I'm holding my knives so maybe maybe I decide whether or not they're puns
3: okay holding that's a verb you're you're like in the world of wordplay
0: okay And we will also be joined by Nithya Raman, who is running for city council in L.A.'s 4th District. She has taken about four minutes to become one of my favorite people. Constantly
3: inspirational. Rad to keep investigating what she will do for Los Angeles.
0: Four minutes, Madonna? That's right. To save the world. Or at least this district, damn it. Well, I'm wearing a Janet shirt, so I don't know how I feel about that.
3: You ever just think about the video for four minutes? Isn't she in a supermarket on a conveyor belt at one point? I'm, I am baffled by her decisions sometimes.
0: And Would Justin I, Timberlake's in it. Yeah, Another right. Another decision.
3: <laughs> Another decision. It was the 2000s. We were all enamored of, you know, white tap dancing men in denim jackets. Let it go.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of white men in jackets, uh, that was a bad transition. But we're also going to talk about Love is Blind. Were those two things supposed to be related? Men in jackets. They wear jackets when they propose to the women
3: that they've never seen. How about we get you into a Groundlings class so we can start putting these sentences together into things that make sense
0: to me? How have about you that?
3: taken Groundlings? I, you know what? I have an honorary degree from Groundlings. Do you? Yeah. hmm They just let me come in and teach whenever.
0: Okay. Well, I have an
3: MFA from Tisch. Ugh, not, uh, truly the most depressing sentence I've ever heard, but it's fine.
0: All right. Uh, when we're back, we'll talk about Love is one. The unscripted division at Netflix is now on the rise after a series of hit shows made their debut this year. Two years ago, the unscripted category launched with Queer Eye and nailed it. And now they've become even more popular with the recent releases of the docu series Cheer and also shows like The Circle. And now, love is blind. And Would let you... me tell you something. Love is blind. And it will take over your mind. <laughs> and what you think is love is really not. You need to elevate and find. Uh, Well done. You've got some brain worms thanks to this show. (laughs) I'm just singing Eve now too. It is truly bonkers. I feel like we have slowly been talking about Netflix reality shows more, um, which makes sense. You know, they've been debuting more. I've also been watching like Next in Fashion. Which which I love. It's great. I think that is a really good show. Mm -hmm. And I think it has more interesting fashion than Project Runway at the moment i mean i'm trying to think about what it was like watching project runway when we were younger yeah and maybe it's just because i'm older now and we're actually into fashion and can like look for things and shop for them online but i don't know i feel like i'm seeing more things that i'm like i would wear that
3: i feel like maybe in the early days of project runway i mean there was still more novelty to a show like that because it was pre-pinterest i just feel like we live in a universe now where there's no such thing as old-fashioned anymore, so mm-hmm. like it's harder to be innovative in a way, whereas if I was watching Project Runway then, you might have actually been introducing me to a new silhouette or a new style or whatever, which mm-hmm. is just rarer now.
0: Yeah, I just feel like more so like what the designers are wearing themselves, like I want those clothes, mm-hmm. what they're actually making. It's less sort of produced on drama than Project Runway was. Yeah. At least, you know, it's like there's really sort of no drama. In next in fashion, and yet I still really enjoyed it.
3: Yeah, well, I think we learned from Great British Baking Show that drama not necessary, really. You know? Yeah,
0: not in a competition show. A quirky
3: know? smile and an oops is all you need to propel you through an episode. <laughs>
0: or Tan France um, hopping around, right? In yes, Pantaloons. pantaloons.
3: He, he's a good TV personality. He he really is like understated to me on Queer Eye. It's, he, it's nice
0: that he can break out. He's really morphed into the best. Yeah, of them, I feel like. I
3: feel like he secretly has the most fans, though. That's yeah. sort of my guess.
0: Yeah, because I, I, J- so I, I
3: would say JVN, but he is, I guess, more polarizing. Yeah, so, you yeah. know,
0: because people are like, "What's that?" <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, we talked about that before. Everyone always being sort of like JVN's too much, you know, or like uh, he's probably too politically um, polarizing too, right? Because um, right, right. he talks about politics a lot on social media, and I feel like Tan just smiles. Right, no, he's a, a, a delight, yeah. Yeah, smiles and wears lovely hair. Permanently plus. aloft hair. His hair is like <laughs> the, the greatest souffle on, on TV. <laughs> but back to Love is Blind, if I can explain this show Please. to you. It is a show where men and women are separated, and uh, they go into these pods and have blind dates with one another. They can only hear voices. And then after a series of dates, a man can propose to one of the women and then they get engaged and then they go to Mexico and they stay together and then they have to prepare for a wedding. This sounds like just a dystopia. I mean, yes. Well, so the hosts are Nick and Vanessa Lachey.
3: I'll say I've missed them. Uh, uh, have your Vanessa Lachey, <laughs> underrated 30 Rock guest star appearance when she played Carmen Chow She
0: was very funny on yeah. 30 Rock Nobody
3: thought she could be that funny, I gotta give it to her
0: Yeah, and Nick Lachey, um, very underrated One Tree Hill guest star <laughs> Sure And Nick and Vanessa sort of pull a Caroline flack in that they are never there They sort of pop up in the beginning and then return episodes later uh-huh, uh-huh. They appear Th- a in A the...
3: Michelle Bouteau, if you will. Yeah. They, I'll be, update yes, that reference yes, for you. Yes,
0: yes. Michelle Bouteau on um, The Circle. They, these new reality shows sort of love a host to appear in the first episode, vanish, and then like they'll pop up episode six, it's like, oh, you're still here? Right.
3: Very Laura Lenny. this is masterpiece <laughs> theater. Yeah.
0: Yes. Uh-huh. It's like, one of the very weird things about this show is it starts with multiple people. Multiple men, multiple women. We get to about six couples- in Mexico, there are other couples that completely vanish. By the way, between the first and the third episode, when they actually get to Mexico, the people who have not found love are just like not on the show anymore. Wow, they just give up on them, they're just no more.
3: No more, they like more. The, the show atrophies them, they just yeah, like fall. The show
0: away. atrophies them, and then there was a Refinery 29 article which really got into the nitty gritty of the show. First of all there are more couples who were engaged, they were just cut, I just for budgetary reasons or because they were too boring. Um, so like one of the characters on the show who I was pretty sure was a producer plant, uh, cause he only shows up talking to the guys about their other relationships and giving them advice and like teaching one guy how to do breathing exercises to prepare himself for getting engaged. I was like, he's completely a plant. Uh-huh. He is only in there to do the producer's work Apparently he was engaged. This guy Rory, wow. and like they didn't show him at all.
3: Mother of God! Yeah.
0: So there's people's journeys who you completely do not follow because I hope kept the remem- per
3: diem was worth it. Right. That's what you got from this. Yeah. Because
0: <laughs> I kept remembering people from like the first episode, and they're gone. And it's interesting having Netflix doing a show like this because I mean. Sure, there's like Survivor or Big Brother or something, and those are sort of almost in real time. I mean, some shows you film before and then you air them all, like mm-hmm. The Mole would do that or something like that. But this was filmed and stopped November 15th, 2018. So these people are just sitting in silence with their... With their secrets. Yeah. Like they, they can't reveal what happened on the show. And I feel like Netflix, more so than any other network, just because they don't work on a network model, probably has scores of filmed reality TV shows that they can just drop at any moment. But it's like, when were they filmed? Yeah, right,
3: right, right. Yeah, they have no obligation to drop it immediately for the most part, right?
0: And because of that, they can sort of edit the show like that. I just, I don't think you could do that for other reality shows. Because, like, people would be like, especially if it's airing week to week, people would be like, hey, where did this woman go?
3: Yeah, I think what a lot of these Netflix shows have in common is when I read the log line for them, I am annoyed. Or (laughs) I've seen some version of it before because it's pretty hard to have like a brand new reality TV idea. But the nature of Netflix is you just slap it on and you don't turn it off. There's something about reality TV in general where... With episodic TV, just keeping track of actual characters or storylines or like even laughing, I don't know, I find it exhausting compared to the experience of putting shows like this on and just falling into them for hours and hours at a time. Like We talked about the show The Circle before. I can't even say I liked that show, but I definitely watched five in a row, and that is something I don't do with episodic narrative scripted television. I find that,
0: for me, too daunting. What was interesting is sort of the Netflix model. It's very telling to me that they are diving into reality television because, you know, that's what television did before. Right. Before Netflix. And I think Netflix has sort of reached a point where, you know, we see a lot of narrative, like, dramas sort of being canceled, right? Mm -hmm. Just because I can't really imagine that much sitting down and watching multiple seasons of multiple episodes. I mean, you, I've even gotten past the point of, like, being able to fully binge a new drama in a day like I feel like we used to like when Daredevil or just the new black dropped like you do that because it was fresh but now there's so much content like it took me two weeks to finish you season two. I'm disappointed in you. Yeah. But I feel like sitcoms are still that sort of thing that you can put on because it's like a new story each episode, you know, and I was recently rewatching some episodes of Buffy and like that at least was had a procedural element so you could watch it in multiple episodes and just sort of come back and it feels like you're getting something fresh. And I feel like reality TV does that a little just because it's new challenges each week. And there's still new characters and something being introduced. And I feel like reality is working as a show that is highly bingeable in a way that we're sort of realizing that long-running narrative dramas in a way when you're like in season five and you're trying to follow what the fuck is happening on like a 13 reasons why, can't really accomplish. Right. Uh, Question
3: for you. What season of reality TV do you think has led us to our current landscape the most. I was wondering if you have the same answer I do. If you feel like there was a particular... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll open it up to just show in general, but to me, there's one season of TV that has precipitated everything that came after it. Everything? No, okay, not everything. There is some classy reality TV still out there, but I'm thinking of the not that.
0: Mm. I don't know. I mean, I'd go with sort of like a Real Housewives moment, probably season two of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, uh, which I think has led us to our dark landscape, Okay, just because that's the season where a woman, Taylor, was sort of being abused by her husband, and then he killed himself. Right. It all unfolded on TV in a very weird way um, that we sort of didn't know what it was about, and that we sort of found out what it's about, and it's a thing that people meme like you've seen the like but now we've said it gif before or like even the the yelling at the cat meme and like all of that stems from that really dark period and i think we're just sort of in a period where we are mining terror and trauma in people's lives and it is able to regurgitate into content.
3: I, you actually, I think, have a better answer than what I was going to say. Because th- that's sort of the second wave of what I was talking about. I was going to say the real world Las Vegas. Mm. That, to me, everything I've watched since that season, this is the era of Trishel. Yes. The the name Trishel, I mean, like, should already electrify you. <laughs> when I say it, it syllabically, it, it should sting a little bit but to me that was the first season of the real world where they just completely did away with the idea of this is a social experiment at Mm -hmm. all and now it's just debauchery that we plucked a few storylines out of basically well yeah i mean they used to
0: have jobs on the real world for people who don't remember that um they used to sort of have to interact with each other and be like Oh, find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. That was the tagline. Right. You know, and... The real world Vegas was just like, here's some hot people in oh, a right. hotel and in that's Vegas. just a,
3: They were blatantly just hot.
0: Yes. That too. Yeah. Yeah. They used to have unattractive people on reality TV. Yes. Just, just so you know. Um, because there was always a little bit of an actual documentary
3: vibe before yeah. that. You this know? was
0: just, these are models. They're just <laughs> in a hotel in Vegas and they're here to fuck. Right. And Trisho did have a threesome in a hot tub. She had a pregnancy scare. Right. She really did it all that year, and obviously there were there
3: were seasons of TV before, it, like Temptation Island predates that and stuff. But I mostly felt like those were failed versions of what, yeah. then be kind of caught on culturally. Like even with the Joe Real Millionaire, World those yeah. things
0: seemed like anomalies. Yeah, uh, but Love Is Blind is truly is going there. You know, it has sort of that Temptation Island feel, only because uh, this is a show that has a cast member on it. Who used to be on another reality show, which is a thing that we don't get that often. Ooh!
3: Um, so unless th- you're talking about what CBS does now, where they put people on Big Brother and then they go on to win yeah. the Amazing Race.
0: No, I remember like there was that one woman who was on like Paradise Hotel and Temptation Island, like things like that, where you realize people are, are trying to be like career reality TV contestants and not in the sense that like it's part of continuity like CBS does. Yeah. Uh this guy Carlton proposed to a woman named Diamond on the show Diamond Jack by the way, uh who I love. And he revealed that he was bisexual to her, but he also waited to reveal it after he'd already proposed to her uh and they had gone to Cancun which was Sort of fishy, because I was like, oh, you got a trip out of it, because you could have told her beforehand, had sort of seen where the chips would fall, and it makes sense when you find out that he was Cynthia Bailey's assistant on The Real Housewives of Atlanta oh in season god. five. Oh my god, he's and, been primed. And got into a shouting match with Kenya Moore on the show. Jesus. So slyly a veteran of the genre. Yeah, a veteran of the genre, you know, and um there's just... So many unhinged people on this show. And it's sort of like, doesn't it find
3: you, doesn't it catch you by surprise that that can still happen? That there are people who can act, my favorite word, guilelessly on shows like
0: this. <laughs> um, I don't know, because I feel like it happens on The Bachelor every season. You write you about that. I don't watch The Bachelor, but every time I see friends' clips of The Bachelor, I'm always like, these people are still being bonkers. I On just, ABC, I every just, season.
3: I just saw a clip of uh, Peter Weber, the current bachelor. His mom, he, he goes and visits with his parents and she is sobbing. I'm talking like hard, uncomfortable sobs. Yeah. Saying, uh, "Uh, bring her home to us. It is so crazy. It is so, and just, and the camera could not be closer to her face. It really, it really blows my mind. Like, you know, theoretically, Ten years ago, this all peaked, and we all became super ironic, and we can't you know, be be ourselves on camera anymore. But no, people still find a way, even though there's no person alive who hasn't watched 25 reality shows at this point.
0: Right. And there's this woman, Jessica, on the show, who's become truly one of the uh, worst people I've ever seen on television. Uh, She is constantly chugging wine. She's an older woman, which means like she's in her 30s, but she (laughs) picks a guy who's in his mid-twenties. And part of it is I'm very confused about, like, this whole process of finding love Aida's on TV. In. Hello, Aida. Hi, hi, hi.
4: I know you're talking shit about Jessica, and I'm here. <laughs> and I am ready. I am ready.
0: Jessica. <laughs> Does she Aida heard the younger to talk about Jessica, and she ran in.
4: I apparated. <laughs> yes.
0: Uh, she is with this guy who's in his twenties, Mark. And sort of the whole process is... They are not sleeping together. They're getting to know each other. But the other couples who've gotten engaged are sort of sleeping together, getting to know each other, et cetera. And Jessica is going through it. Oh, God. And, and, and what can only be described as just true derangement. <laughs> I'm on
4: episode two, so I'm not as far as that. But it's good to know that they end up fucking or not fucking at some point.
0: Yeah, yeah. The shows go for broke now. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking about reality television in general, and mm-hmm. you know how it is sort of shifting now that it's on Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, what's been your experience with reality TV?
4: Well, you know, I came up in the Flavor of Love, mm-hmm. um, yes. Rock of Love. Those Real were shows of love. that
0: felt like that too. Yes, tequila. Yeah, Tequila. Those are
4: the ones that I. I, I had can't that. believe
3: there's a time I looked forward to that Tequila Tequila show every week. I, I loved truly her. was so into it.
4: The aesthetics of like the old MTV VH1 shows, I'm still here for the bubble
3: fonts and everything. 100%. Yeah, one hundred
4: percent. I feel like that's very similar though to what Netflix is doing now. You know, if deconstructed. Anything,
0: I felt like those shows Fantastic. were <laughs> deconstructed, but. Funny. Yeah. Like the editors were really having fun with mm-hmm. those shows. I feel like the conceits of these shows now is they're being taken Bezos. very seriously. A lot of heartstrings, yeah. And we're supposed to interpret the comedy ourselves on social media.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Us- yeah. Using our gift making camp magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: But whereas they were sort of creating really fun moments on like those. VH1 shows, you know? Those like, producers
4: would, like, orchestrate and egg-on situations. Remember when Pumpkin spit on New York? Yeah. Oh, that yes. is the type of thing that I think a producer was like, okay, run it back, let's do it again. Like, those kind of situations.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember very uh, vividly a woman named Toasty. Is that right? <laughs> Tasty. Was her name Tasty? <laughs> Tasty. I had a friend in college. I was watching it, and he walked in on me watching it. He goes is this one of those shows where the dumbest people on Earth claim to be master manipulators? I'm like, you are correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That is still the genre we're in. That still is what reality TV is. You know, People you avoid at the bowling alley are now like <laughs> it, ruining people's lives
0: you yeah. know, <laughs> systematically. Uh, and what's interesting is how much it's taking off on Netflix, right? And I feel like, are we due for another reality glut like we had in the 2000s where Netflix is... Only reality shows. Hmm.
3: Well, again, I, I do think it's the easiest genre to watch continuously. I feel mm-hmm. that way. Yeah, it's it's sort of like watching a movie on a plane. You can come in and out of it inconsequentially. You know. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. Also, I like this wave of kind of dystopian Black Mirror real like reality shows. So I'm I'm down for this. I'm a fan of this. It's not like the classic Bachelorette dating style or even the old VH1 shows.
3: You're preferring it gets darker.
4: Yes, I wanted to get dark. They have to kill for love. <laughs> <The next> <laughs> <season>. <laughs> That's what I want.
0: The hunt with Betty Gilpin, but a reality yeah. show. Yes. Yeah, I mean Netflix is supposed to be revealing its top ten shows on your feed at some point, you yeah. know, and I feel like. What's it going to be like when the top ten shows are just reality shows? It's I won't feel, like it. It's going to feel like the late two thousands on network TV. Yeah, Ooh. where we thought we had escaped that much reality TV, and it was like, oh, streaming content. Now people can watch what they want to watch, but now it's people want to watch reality TV. It's I, back. It does feel like it goes all the way back to what the movie network. Yeah, yeah. feel free to rewatch, guys. And if you don't rewatch it, Lewis, we'll talk about it every week. <laughs> don't worry. No. All right, when we're back. Ryan Johnson and my knives. Oh my god. Keep it is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis. Yes. When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> <laughs> No, Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. We are really excited to have Ryan Johnson here on Keep It. No one else's knives are out. Mine are. Oh my
4: god! <laughs> Can I have my honorary knives out at least?
0: I, I will give you a butter knife. Okay. <laughs> I'll give Lewis a sport. I have a whole scimitar.
2: (laughs) I would be more generous, but it's not my show. (laughs) Sorry, guys.
0: guys. Let's talk about this movie that I feel like I've been obsessed with first (laughs) before we talk about anything else. Were you surprised that this was so, like, celebrated online (laughs) and basically, like, not even just me, like, people Uh, making memes about it? I mean, the the Democratic debate was this week and, like, everyone is tweeting... Elizabeth Warren's knives <laughs> <nods> are out.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, you're always. I mean, it's it's and by the way, it's been it was it's, it's just been really really sweet the support that you've had for the movie. Oh, it's thank been you. Really 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 nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, and I'm happy to be here. And I said that when I sat down, but I don't think we were recording, so I'll say it while we're recording. I was <laughs> so happy to talk to you guys. Uh, yeah, man, shock. You're always surprised. You know, you do anything, and you're always you're kind of have your head down doing it, and you're always surprised when people, you know, when you get a good response from it. I, I will say, like when we were editing the movie, we took it out and like tested it, and we took it. We didn't want to do it in L.A. Kind of because of the political stuff in it. We wanted mm-hmm. to get outside of Los Angeles to just make sure that that wasn't going to. You have people just leaving the theater in droves, or something, and so we took it. We did a screening in Orange County, and we did two screenings like outside of Dallas, and the crowd really responded well to. And that was when I started to kind of relax a little bit. I was like, "Oh, okay, yeah, people are having a good time watching this movie." So, um, but still,
3: it's it's. I mean, it's been so cool to see. Yeah, I I think what's surprising to me about it is that I'm like like you. I grew up obsessed with Who Done but and I know that that's. Something I am obsessed with, but I had kind of lost a sense of how much the general public cared about whodunits because yeah. it now it feels like this niche interest almost. Like, yeah. like you bring up a movie like Murder by Death, and it's like, well, uh, like I can talk to you about Eileen Brennan, but like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my neighbors can. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, how, how much hope do you have to have for a movie like that? Like, how, how much could you gauge the the potential interest in a movie like that? It's exactly what you're describing. Is because
2: I'm a whodunit junkie, and I I watch all of them. I watch everything that comes out. I'm like scraping the you know I'm not a drug user, so I'm gonna use the wrong terms. I'm scraping the <laughs> resin from it. is that what you tell me to do? You're like was it? I don't know. But uh I'm I'm uh, but yeah I, I I am so into it and I feel like there's always been this kind of like undercurrent where there, it's a genre where that just has a lot of love, even if it's not something that's like right there on the surface of culture. You talk to people and you mention who'd done it, and so you just see this warm look come into a lot of people's eyes. But yeah, it's it was a little bit of just kind of me feeling like I feel like people would really respond to a really fun one of these if we did it. Um, and it's kind of rolling the dice a little bit. You never quite know, but I – I knew for myself I wanted to see it and ultimately that's the only thing you can do is kind of figure out what do you want to see and then hope there's people like you out there,
0: you know? Uh Yeah, I feel like a large part of what's so entertaining about it is we've all seen those movies, you know, but I really enjoy the fact that part of the way through the movie you sort of figure out what's happened you know mm-hmm, and right. then it's a different story you know yeah. watching uh, someone get away with it yeah and uh i think that that was sort of the twist that you sort of need yeah to make it current to keep people from getting ahead of it yeah and it is
2: also i mean ultimately for me as much as i love whodunits i also feel like especially in the context of a movie who did it is kind of the least interesting part of it mm. like i think when you said like people Think about like sitting down to write a It, getting hung up on what's a clever twist. That's actually a trap thinking about it that way because you you end up coming up with ridiculous clever it's stuff. It's an orangutan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was. A, it was a, it killed him with a piece of frozen something, you know, with a popsicle. The first thing you have to remember is these movies are still movies. And so you got to think dramatically and you have to think in terms of what's actually going to be satisfying at the end. That's why the movie doesn't end with the revelation of who did it. It ends with the completion of Marta's arc with the family and everything. Yeah. You know, so tipping the hat and revealing to the audience early on that was a way of telling them this doesn't matter so much. We're on this other journey with this character, and let's 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 go along with that. Did yeah. you
4: did you know that going in? Did you did you have the deliberate yeah. want to make a genre bending movie, or did it just end up being that way as you sat down? Well, to
2: right. It's funny for me. I don't even think of it like as, as genre bending. I mean, you go back to like Agatha Christie's books. You know, I mean, she was trying. Everything and she did stuff even with very early books like with the murder of Roger Ackroyd she did a twist that was so meta that people actually called foul there was like you know the equivalent <laughs> of people yelling at her on Twitter back then basically you know because um, she would try anything man so. And that's my kind of whole approach to genre. Is the way to actually get back to the roots of a genre and to really actually honor it is by cutting yourself loose because that's what they were doing back then. You know, it's not by just copying what they did; it's by really being inventive with it and trying to get to what is the essential pleasure of it. How do I give that to an audience who's seen a bunch of it? And sometimes I mean shaking it a little bit, but ultimately it's it's to get back to like to the heart of it, I guess. You know,
3: and, I think uh, what's interesting is like I'll say ten years ago or so, the AFI did a list of like the best mysteries ever, mm-hmm. and the the ones that they picked, you realize how few whodunit type things or mysteries are mm-hmm. actually about picking one possible person who's the solution or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I think Vertigo is the number one of all time, and that's not a movie about like, well, it's one of four people, right. you know? <laughs> right, right, right. So actually, it's like uh, what we think of as a traditional whodunit ending is actually pretty rare. But uh, I, in this recent run you had where you were nominated for the Best Original Screenplay Oscar, I have to ask, is there particular pride in... In being a movie that was nominated for original screenplay and not picture. Because these are, <laughs> well, I think Iron and I have discussed this before, some of our favorites. Like yeah. Nightcrawler, mm-hmm. 20th Century Women, no Ex kidding. Machina. No, I love you know, that. It's, so it's like this, it's, it's these movies that are, I think, do really well with audiences and are gripping... And you want to read them on the page. And then for some reason, they don't get picture. I, I can't explain it. I'll yeah. take it. I'll yeah. take that company, man. I'll be out yeah. that company.
2: I mean, it's fun. I mean, for me, it was like such a good year for movies and such a good year for original movies. Yeah, this is going to sound like the cliche thing that everyone says in this situation, but it's actually true. Just like looking at the other names on that list and just like being in that company, I was just like, oh, my God. That was insane. The other really fun thing is um, – you know, when you're when you're doing, I mean, it is kind of like a tour that you're on when you're when you're on kind of this campaign or whatever you want to call it, um, including like events, including uh, other award shows leading up to the Oscars, and so it's kind of like you're in a band, you're touring with a band with these other writers and these other filmmakers, and that was actually like the most enjoyable thing about this whole process is just getting to know like director Bong and getting to hang out with Noah and Greta and. Scott Silver and like all these other writers like just in Taika that's like the actual pleasure of it, just actually getting to spend time with those folks. And it does feel like this weird other reality that you're all in. You're in this bubble for a few months together and you end up really bonding. It's it's actually really cool.
3: Do you have a kinship with any of those other yeah. writers? Yeah.
2: yeah, I've known Noah for, for I mean, you know, we haven't been like close friends, but I've known him for years. I met him at Sundance because my first movie, Brick, was there when Squid and the Whale mm-hmm. was there. Okay. And we like oh. met each other then. Really over the past year through this whole process, we've we've been kind of, seeing each other a a weirdly large amount on the tour Mm -hmm. and he's such a lovely dude he and Greta are both are both great so um and Karina knows Greta um I think she was friends with her back in New York actually years ago.
0: Karina Longsworth um your wife who hosts the amazing podcast You Must Remember This about like Hollywood history and you love movies and genres so it's just like what do you watch at home and what uh, do you talk about? Yeah, what, <laughs> what, so you must have seen everything. <laughs> yeah, no there's so much to see. We're
2: uh no I mean the Criterion Channel and if you guys got that it's just like heaven for us and that's oh, what sure. we do. Yeah. So, it's what we do. We just go surfing there. I'll just hand her the remote. Yeah. But also she you know for her work she has to do a lot of research and you just you kind of assume that every movie in the world is available somewhere streaming. It's really really not. So mm-hmm. she does it a, is not. She has a lot yeah. of deep diving where she like orders weird DVDs or you know, the last resort is always checking YouTube. But that's only if it's not available anywhere. If you can buy it anywhere, you do. But I um, had to
0: watch like "Written on the Wind" and "Magnificent Obsession" on YouTube because really? they're just like not on there, any sort of streaming. Service. There
2: are weird things that slip through the cracks like that. Yeah, that you would think, how really this isn't available, and and it's actually not. Yeah.
0: When I try and think like, what is Orion Johnson film, and it's like, we already know what the next one will be because we know that a Knives Out Two is coming. But like, you think about like noir with brick you know and then you Mm -hmm. think like some sci-fi film looper I mean and like Brothers Bloom like a con film you know (laughs) so it's like what do you think about when you're sitting down to make a new movie do you think like genre first or does like an idea pop into your head and then you're like I think it fits into this genre
2: yeah for me there's kind of like two elements of it there's kind of like the movie movie element which is like a genre or something story wise or something that I'm like oh it'd be fun to play like in this sandbox for me the, the real key is always like there's gotta be something that I'm going through something that I'm thinking about that really matters to me something I can get angry about basically and when the genre locks like kind of key and lock with that thing and I realize the genre can be used in a very organic way to explore this thing that's when I'm I'm off to the races is there any genre
0: that like you're still craving like writing a story and uh, and like one that you're like I'm, I could never write a movie in this genre
2: well I would I've, I've actually been t- so Nathan who's my cousin who's been my composer um, for like everything but Star Wars and we've been making movies together since we were 10 years old we keep talking about like writing an original musical which would, is like a genre I love so much and it mm-hmm. would be so much fun to do I mean it's such an expansive genre it's a matter of like figuring out what it would be and narrowing right. it down and then the genre I don't it's funny, I never I think it's maybe because I grew up religious in this religious household. But I ne- I mean not like, you know. Uh, you know, not like puritanical or something. We were like Orange County Christians, basically. <laughs> but, but I grew up personally really r- religious. I'm not anymore. But um, because of that, I didn't watch horror movies. And mm. never gotten into horror mm-hmm. movies. And they just never got into my DNA. And I have really dear friends who are great horror directors. And I really admire what they do. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I have that, like,
0: in me. I, I mean, thinking of Knives Out, I feel like the one horror genre that would probably really work well for you is probably like a slasher film. God, that's mm. the one I can't do. Oh I, uh, no, it's that, that is the one, one with me, yeah? the that yeah. is the one with like, particularly with like a scream. Yeah. You know, like yeah. that is like the one where you end up at the end like trying to figure out from all the suspects who is the murderer. Yeah,
2: Scream is kind of a whodunit, right? Yeah. They pull off the mail, scooby, Scooby-Doo sort of,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I guess yeah, that sort yeah. of revitalized yeah. the slasher genre in a whodunit You way. know what, I mean, the, the thing is
2: with, even with Knives Out, you can see it closest thing is like the character Fran's death and mm. it's like the only like real murder in it, but everything else, I'm a softie. Like, I can't, <laughs> you know, I can't. It's not like people are getting stabbed and killed left and right and it. it's very, you know, and so, and I don't know, yeah. There's something about something about the killing. I don't know. It's specifically, in <laughs> a slasher movie and the way it's. I don't know. That's that's the yeah a slasher movie specifically is actually the one genre I never really. I really I'm trust you with to. any genre
3: though because yeah. I, I have to say in sitting here talking to you, it's just rare. I'm like an obsessive trivia person in general, yeah. and it's rare that I look at somebody and be like. Oh, but you, you wouldn't attack a genre unless you knew everything about it. You had seen it. So no matter what you produce, it won't be a boring version of it because right. you've already seen those, too. <laughs> yeah, I, I can thank Karina for that. <laughs>
4: I remember the first time when I saw the the billboard for Knives Out and uh-huh. I just seeing this amazing cast and seeing Tony Collette and Daniel Craig and Lakeith Stanfield uh-huh. and thinking what could this movie possibly
1: be? <laughs> like, what on
4: earth am I going to win
2: ingredients, it's like seeing a chef toss, yeah. like, you know, yeah. a, a ham and a carrot and an <laughs> apple and, like, a, and some fruit out. juice. Yeah, yeah.
4: So my question for you, just at you being the director, is how do you... Rein in these personalities or amplify them? How do you make sure that these people are seen in like, the ways that you want them to be seen? And how does that go?
2: You mean just in terms of like in the story, making sure yeah, everyone the has their place, right? Yeah, I mean, that was a lot of work, but it mostly happens in the writing where you try and, as best you can, um, you know, it, it was essential to every every character and it felt like a real character. We weren't making like a, a parody of murder mysteries, but at the same time, they're very elevated characters. And so... They're very strong types, and so that helps differentiate them. And then it's just when you're writing, diagramming it out and making sure that without slowing the story down, you're giving everybody their moment and everybody has their thing to do. Because once you get the actors involved and once everyone's on set, those actors are so good that they're going to take whatever you've given them and make it seem like 10 times more, you know. So um, you give Tony Collette 30 seconds and she's going to make you feel yeah. like you really know her character, you know. And so – So they're going to help you. It's just a matter of building it into the script so that everyone's got um, is distinct enough and has their thing. It'll only get better once you put the actors in there.
4: Follow-up question. The part where Marta Throws up every time she lies. You Uh, had that first before you wrote the script, right? No, (laughs) no, no.
2: That came along while I was – yeah, I was actually a ways into writing it. And I thought I need to make life like a little harder on her Mm -hmm. because, you know, you want – it's like, you know, I call it the Vince Gilligan school of writing. Like you want to take the characters you love the most and make life miserable for them. So she's in this horrible situation. Her only tool to get out is lying. Um, let's take away her ability to lie. And so then I was thinking like, okay, that I means she has a tell, so she touches her nose twice and I, or something like that. And I thought, well, it's kind of boring. And I came up with the vomit thing. And besides that being just kind of like fun and also being something she can't really hide – I real, When I realized how I could use that at the ending, mm-hmm. it, that got really exciting to me because besides it being fun, her throwing up in Chris Evans' face, there's a real practical screenwriting problem that that solves, which is – At that point in the movie, I've just had my protagonist sitting passively for 20 minutes listening to Daniel Craig explain and fix everything and basically solve it. I needed a moment at the end where Marta was going to be active and was going to, through something she did, win and beat. Chris beat Ransom. Um, so when I realized I could use the puke thing as that, basically, that's when I got really, really excited. I mean, that's what you're always looking for, is something that serves multiple functions in a script, and when it comes back, um, it escalates. So it, that that's just, got you know, that's the sort of thing when you, you're, you're a writer, you stare at a wall for weeks and
0: weeks, and then finally you get that idea, and you're yeah. like, ah, yeah, that'll work. And Anna de Armas <laughs> is so great in that movie. Yeah. And also, yeah. like... Just side note, like I did, I hadn't seen Blade Runner, yeah, um, before I saw this, and so like I did not know just how gorgeous Anna is, oh, and then so. seeing yeah. her in the Bond trailer, I was like her just in these jeans and like the. Um, cardigan. I was like, oh, who's this nice actress that they
2: found
1: <laughs> See,
0: it's, somewhere? it's
2: the opposite for me because I, so I uh, had seen Blade Runner, mm-hmm. but I wasn't really familiar with Anna's work, but my casting director, Mary Verneau, she said, you have to look at Anna Darmus." I had had a few other friends when I was just kind of mentioning who we were looking for, say, oh, yeah, look at Anna Darmus." And then I, I, the first thing I did is Google her, and I only saw all the glam shots of mm-hmm. her. And I'm like, and I'm thinking for the character of Marta, I'm like, uh, I don't know, if are you sure this is like the right person for this? Um And of course she came in and read and I realized the soul she was bringing. I realized, oh yeah, she's mm-hmm. great. And then we styled her down and costumed her and like made her kind of feel like the part.
0: And you have so many roles for great actresses in your films. It's great to see that from a male writer, director as yourself. You know, you have something that has a role for a... Tony Collette, a Jamie Lee Curtis, a Rachel Vice, you know Renko Kikuchi, yes. Renko yeah. Masters. God, I want to work
2: with Renko again. Man. She's the yeah. best. She's so so cool.
0: Yeah, holy shit. Yeah, why wouldn't you want to
2: work with them and have write like incredible stuff for them? And it's uh yeah, I don't know. I've been really
0: lucky in that way. Speaking of actors, yeah. I, we would all be remiss if we did not ask, where the fuck is Joseph Gordlevin. <laughs> where, where, where are you keeping him? Where are you keeping him? Happened
2: yeah. to have him right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and, and the fact that they were like, where is he? And I was like, oh no, I knew he was an uncredited voice. And Knives yeah, Out yeah. and then I looked up his IMDB and I was like oh wait he was also an uncredited voice in Last shout out. so I'm like is he only like Ryan I'm, I'm no, only gonna call keep, in no
2: <laughs> we keep trying no we keep it's just schedule 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 it just keeps not lining up and I can't wait to get back on a set with that because we're still really good friends and we still are like dying to work with each other again and we will it's just
0: we yeah, need these to take festival
2: down, hit movies. Record. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> tonight, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> get out of our laptops. Let's hack in and
0: just. <laughs> uh, you are also a person who I would describe as sort of like me, like online.
1: Yeah, and
0: I'm like <laughs> distressingly so. <laughs> <True love. laughs> how can you avoid just like not hating the internet so much every day that you're like, I don't want to be on it? But also, how can you like balance? doing all the work that you're doing and then still sort of, like, popping in and having right. fun on social media. The day that I don't enjoy it, the day I feel like what you're saying, like, oh, how do I make
2: myself enjoy this? I'll be off it in a shot. I think if you don't genuinely enjoy being on there, there's no reason really to be on there, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, right, you know, right after The Last Jedi came out when there was, like, the, a big wave of kind of, like, um a really specific section of the internet, like negativity coming my way. That, never
0: met any of those people.
2: Yeah, no, never, never. <laughs> in your life. Yeah, I know, I know. Well they keep to themselves. No They're usually pretty, no respect- pretty no respectful. Pretty no. respectful typically. Um no, but it's e- even in the worst section of that. Um, you know, I I stepped away from it for a little bit, but I also kind of it there was never a moment where I'm like, this is hell, I have to get out of here. It mm-hmm. was more like it was kind of healthy um, that because you know I had been I had had this kind of life on the internet where I'd never had anyone really really hate me, mostly because I you know had never done anything high profile enough for anyone to really really hate so I kind of if You know, before Star Wars, if, like, one person said something slightly negative about me, the next three weeks I would be like, how do I fix this? You know, (laughs) oh, my God, someone doesn't like me on the internet. I was, like, in that very sheltered, protected place. And I think it was actually really healthy to break that and to disconnect kind of my own – self-worth from what people thought of me on the internet. I think that was actually a good thing to go through. I know you can't tell us anything about Knives Out 2, Still Out. Let's spill
0: it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
2: we need to come up with a title here. We're not leaving. I'm not leaving this table until we come up with a title.
0: Um, but <laughs> what sort of mind space are you getting into to write this? Like have you started writing it? Have you started outlining it? Yeah, I've started just kind of like coming up with the I-
2: idea for it and it's it's um, for me it, that most of the work at this point is getting in the right headspace for it which is just getting back to kind of like the the pure place I was in when I wrote the first one, which is just I love this genre. There's so many things you can do with this genre. Let's let, what would be the thing that would bring me the most joy to sit down and write, kind of pulling from all this stuff that I love, you know. Yeah. So not thinking of it in terms of an extension of the last movie, or thinking of it in terms of like, oh, what did people like about the last movie, I have to repeat that or something, because that can really screw you up. It, it's 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 uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be. For me, it's just a matter of kind of getting back to that place of what would be the most fun thing to do in the murder mystery realm. And there's so many different things you can do, you know. Um, That's what's fun. Like, again— look at Agatha Christie's work, how many books she wrote and how wildly varied it was in terms of the plot she did, the places she went, so,
3: yeah. Which, yeah. by the way, people should go see Witness for the Prosecution. I was in the play in high school. It holds up <laughs> as a movie. Yeah, um, right. And then so secondly, good. I was I, I was thinking about Agatha Christie as you were describing that and being like, is he just p- going to pick like an exotic transportation device? Like, yeah, submarine yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also, I
2: mean, because I, I, I was thinking briefly about the boat, but of course they're doing Death on the Nile, but also right. La- Last of mm-hmm. Sheila, which is one of my Favorite movies is is very much set like on a yacht.
0: Like I mean, San so writing yacht. a Who Done It. Yeah,
2: uh, Anthony God. Perkins. Yeah. I mean,
3: yeah, Your dead right. lover. My t-
2: time machine <laughs> husband, Tony Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I wish I could. If there if there was a set that I wish I could time travel back and be on, I think it's that set. Just imagining what that must have
3: been like. All those actors know? just have that kind of like. Yeah, yeah, bitchy
2: edge kind. Of, yeah, lately it's the most seventies. The men too. The yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So was, no. <laughs> uh,
0: well, thank you for being here. Thanks for having yeah, me. Guys. I feel like we could I'm talk so about seventies movies all day. Okay. I just, like, yeah, well, I I'm taking a list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm trying to take
4: everything in.
1: Uh,
4: <laughs> Google Agatha Christie. No, I'm yeah, kidding. Exactly. See, that's yeah. not, that's uh, too far. Uh,
1: that's All right. Yeah. Thank you for being here.
0: Thank you so <laughs> much for having me. Yeah. Come back when the movie's out. That sounds like a deal. All right. Knives out is available on digital now, Blu-ray, DVD, and On Demand. We are very excited to be joined by Nithya Raman. It's good to see you again. Nice
5: to see you, too. Thank you so much for being here. What a pleasure. It's an honor. Well, I'm very excited to be here.
0: Uh, You are running for city council in Los Angeles in District 4. Mm -hmm. And... First of all, if you're in L.A., early voting has started already. Mm -hmm. Lewis has voted Mm -hmm. already. I did a really good job. Yes. Go, girl. And (laughs) actual voting is March 3rd. That's the deadline. Mm -hmm. That's Super Tuesday. Which
5: is coming up, yeah. Yeah, but there's – you know that there's voting – Across L.A. County now, that's yeah. going to start on the weekend. Like now it's in a few places, but on the weekend it's going to be in a ton of places.
3: Yeah. If you're checking your polling location, make sure you're seeing
0: the ones that uh, are open before the 29th. If you go before the 29th. Yeah. yeah. Basically yeah. voting in L.A. seems like the Olympics. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> you are constantly figuring things out. And uh, you are challenging an incumbent Democrat. Yeah. David Rue. Mm-hmm. And why did you think now was an important time to do that?
5: Well, I think in Los Angeles, we've had a few years of frustrating city politics here. We've seen a staggering increase in homelessness. We've had a 65% increase in rents over the last decade. Our air is getting worse. Our traffic is getting worse. I feel like a lot of the things that make up uh, what we would consider progress in a city, we're seeing actually the city go backwards. And I just felt like we were in this moment, not just in Los Angeles, but in the country as a whole, where people are excited to participate and get local. And this was an opportunity to say, you know, we can challenge what has been happening over the last few years. We don't have to accept kind of the status quo anymore. We don't have to accept that in Los Angeles. And so I decided to run. I never thought I would run for Mm. office, but... I think this moment is really exciting in L.A.
0: Can you tell us yeah. a bit about what you were doing before you decided to run for office? You were working for Time's Up.
5: Yeah, so right before this, I was working for Time's Up, which is the the organization that grew out of Me Too activism. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was running the work in the entertainment industry. So mm-hmm. we were doing a lot of work around making workplaces in the entertainment industry safer for all workers, but particularly mm-hmm. for women workers, um, and trying to push for gender equity. Um, and it was really exciting work. We were at the center of this kind of revitalized or um, newly loud women's rights movement across the world. And that was a really exciting thing. But I think that what's happening in L.A. is even more exciting in many ways.
3: Mm-hmm. One thing I love about you is, uh, if, if, if you'll forgive me, I don't know who, who your uh, candidate is. You remind me of Elizabeth Warren and how you take one-on-one interactions with real people and then immediately implement it into something that everybody can understand about L.A. Mm -hmm. What have you taken from meeting people in L.A.? When I think about living in L.A., I don't think of this... uh, For years, I never thought of myself as part of a community. I think of it as... You find wherever you can stake that you can possibly pay for and just like go about your life and hopefully you get on Deadline.com someday. (laughs) It's like a sweepstakes. (laughs) I never thought Mm -hmm. of it as like I'm here in a situation that is actually livable or wants me to be a part of this community. You know, so what do you what have you gotten just from meeting people in L.A. and the struggles they're facing that seem obviously insurmountable?
5: I want to talk about this idea of community for a moment that you talked about, because I do think that L.A. has a reputation for not having any sense of community, but in the work, So I actually, while I was at Time's Up and even before I was at Time's Up, uh, with a group of my neighbors, I started this homeless coalition in my neighborhood called SELA. And SELA is one of the most active volunteer-run homeless coalitions in the city. And we started it because we saw a lot more people experiencing homelessness in our neighborhood, and we wanted to find a way to directly support people and try and help them to get back into housing. And the thing, like, everyone says this about L.A., that, like, we don't have a sense of community here. We don't have a sense of real local civic engagement. But what Cela did was to open up this space locally where people were, like, rushing to volunteer. We were and continue to be overwhelmed with volunteers. And I think what is exciting about the work that we did in Cela, but also just this campaign, is that I think that if you make that space for people to have that sense of community locally, I think people are are, are pretty hungry for it. And they're, like, flooding into it. And I think that's what's been most exciting about this campaign. So when we, we've been knocking on doors for this campaign. We've knocked on more doors. From what I know of other city council campaigns, but nobody really divulges the real numbers, <laughs> we've knocked on more doors than, I think, any city council campaign in history through this race, through my own door knocking and through our field team and through a huge number of volunteers who've come out and knocked on doors for us. And the things that people talk about at doors are... Homelessness and the high cost of housing. Those are the two biggest issues that everybody wants to talk about. But in the campaign, what we're allowing people to do is to say to folks, if we can get different people in power, we can actually impact those things. And it doesn't seem so insurmountable. They seem like they're part of the landscape of Los Angeles. They seem inevitable in a way. But I think the message of the campaign is like, if you can get better people into power, if we can put into place policies that can actually help people get off the streets quickly, that can help prevent evictions, that can help keep rents lower, like we can actually transform these problems that feel really insurmountable. And I think that's very empowering and that has actually created a big sense of community around the campaign, which has been really awesome to witness.
0: I think it's also largely because we are in Los Angeles, we're in California, and I feel like it's been – such a focus on the general election, on the presidency um, for so many years uh, that we sort of felt like, how can we contribute, you know? And it feels nice to be able to, yeah, go and support like a Warren event if you'd like to. But, mm-hmm. you know, it feels even better going to support a Nithya event because it's like we can actually sort of make a change with our vote in yeah. Los Angeles. And it's gotten a lot of people really interested in city politics, you know, and I feel like um, you've gotten big endorsements from people like Jane Fonda. And like, why do you think your campaign is sort of resonating with people like that?
5: Um, I I do think it's that sense of helplessness that people have that, like, I feel like people in California are like, my vote doesn't matter, right? Because I'm in this blue state, and I can't do anything against this broader national crisis that is changing America. But here locally, your vote matters and it can transform L.A. And the other thing that I think is really interesting is that city council in L.A. is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And I think people don't always know that. I think especially people who are familiar with East Coast cities where mayors are the big bosses.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: In L.A. and in other cities, we have a weak mayor, strong council system. Mm-hmm. And we only have 15 council members for a city of four million. So each council member has a district, which is enormous. It's you know over 250,000 people. And they have an enormous amount of control over how things are done within their own district. And they control so many parts of what shape your lives in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And so I think somebody like Jane Fonda, who is really focused on the climate crisis right now, she felt empowered by the fact that our city council can actually control our Department of Water and Power. It's the largest publicly owned utility in America. um, And we control the port of Los Angeles. Both of those are enormous tools that can move us towards our climate goals. Mm-hmm. And if we can do it in LA, we can set an example for how we can move towards those goals urgently across America. You know? And so I think that's really exciting. It's like the change can be super local and it can be really um, fast if people in power feel that sense of urgency. And yeah. I think that's that's what's exciting for people.
4: It's honestly already very reassuring to hear you talk about advocacy so passionately. And I wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit about global efforts that you've done. I know that you have advocacy programs in India with homelessness and how things like that could – tenants from that could transfer down to California.
5: Uh, well, I worked with some homeless folks in India. But the work that I did in India was with people who lived in slums there for okay. the most part. Slums are informal settlements because they're not on maps. They're not regulated settlements. And what we did there was that I worked with groups that were living in slums and informal settlements that were advocating for things like running water, for land rights, for toilets, for really basic um, necessities. I think the thing that's been so interesting for me as I've looked at my work in Los Angeles and and what kind of has translated from that work to this work is that I have found myself surprised that I'm doing the same things here that I did there. Like, I did a huge effort in Chennai, where I was living, where I counted public toilets. And I feel like we did the same work to see how many toilets there were for people experiencing homelessness in Los Angeles. You know, and it was, it's almost sad in a way. It's like, we shouldn't be asking those same questions in the second largest city in the richest country in the world. But here we are, we're doing those same things. But I do think that a lot of the tools that we use there, which was, trying to get communities organized, trying to use community-generated data or community-generated research to push for change. That's some of the same things that we were also doing in the work around homelessness in Los Angeles.
0: That's really something you never think about. You know, when I'm back home in Milwaukee, um, I noticed that we, you know, have sort of more of an abundance of public restrooms than are here in Los Angeles. And it's just, Something I feel like you think about when maybe you're out somewhere and you're like, you need to use a restroom. But for us, it's very easy to pop into a restaurant or a store and, you know, and you don't think about the fact that many other people would be turned away at the door for walking in.
3: I think uh, something that fascinates me about the race you're in now is like your district is so wide ranging. I mean – Silver Lake all the way to Sherman Oaks, which are two totally different experiences of living. Mm-hmm. What's it like unifying all of those people? What specific challenges do you have? Well, it's a question mark whether I will have unified all those people. <laughs> <laughs> that
5: will be answered on March 3rd.
3: <laughs>
5: um, I, so I think it's been really exciting to be able to campaign in so many different neighborhoods and to be able to talk to residents who are in really different um, lifestyles, who are like living really different lifestyles. Like some people are living really in dense communities, in apartments where they're using public transit most of the time. And some people are living in communities that look like the suburb that I grew up in. The challenge ahead of us in this district is to try and articulate a vision for the future that can make everybody feel positive about change. And I think the thing that unites everybody is that they're frustrated with some of the bigger challenges that LA is facing. Like I think everybody sees growing homelessness crisis. Everybody sees the fact that prices are getting out of control in LA. Um, Everybody sees that our air and traffic are getting so much worse. And I think people want solutions. They want a government that is activated and has real ideas for how to tackle those issues. And so I think that's really what's been resonating with people. But I do think that there's like really specific issues in certain neighborhoods that definitely don't come up. Like in the communities that are near the Van Nuys and Burbank airports, there's been this huge issue of airport noise. Like flight paths have changed recently out of those airports. And there are certain neighborhoods where they've just had low flying and f- very frequent planes flying over those neighborhoods every few minutes f- for the past couple of years. And it's been driving those residents absolutely crazy. So it's just like an issue that does not impact Silver Lake in any way, shape or form. Yeah, right. And it's super specific to that neighborhood. But I think the response to all of them is the exact same thing. Like you want, like in six months, our council campaign has been out at so many doors. We've built a huge network of people, activated a large number of volunteers, and we've been going out to every neighborhood and telling them about the campaign, telling them that they have a choice in this upcoming election. And I think all of the people that I've spoken to recognize and see the work that we're putting into this campaign. And I think they want someone who will be proactive when they're in office, too. Someone who doesn't wait for Complaints to come to them, but actually goes out to neighborhoods and talks to them. So in some ways, that, like, responsiveness that our campaign has had, that resonates with people no matter what their problem is. Because ultimately what you want is a representative who's, like, working their butts off to solve the issues that you're facing. I feel like I can comfortably say that we're the hardest working campaign.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I concur. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Speaking just generally about the homelessness crisis, you know, to really sort of pinpoint to people – how large this is. I'm thinking about when I heard you talk about just how um, imminent this is, you know, how like it gets worse each year and I keep thinking about the fact that the Olympics will be coming to Los Angeles, you know, and so that is a thing that globally people will be watching and just can you tell us a bit how Something like that will have such a huge impact on Los Angeles if we don't do anything about the housing and homelessness crisis here.
5: Yeah. So I was in India when the – I think it was the Commonwealth Games Mm -hmm. were happening. And what I saw there was the city was responding to those Commonwealth Games by trying to make populations of homeless folks and slum neighborhoods kind of disappear. They were raising slums. They were – pushing homeless folks out of huge parts of the city because they didn't want the public face of Delhi to be tainted with this image, these like very stark images of poverty and inequality. Mm-hmm. And I think something really similar could happen in Los Angeles when the Olympics comes, that because we don't want our public appearances to be tainted with our massive homeless population, that we will resort to kind of widespread removals of folks from the streets and mm. potentially incarceration or moving them into camps that are not in the city or something. So I think I fear for what will happen if we don't proactively get people housed before then, mm-hmm. because I think in response to that public presentation, there could be really severe measures that are taken that are not good for, for any of us, but you know, will be terrible for people who are experiencing homelessness.
0: And how do you just sort of like touch people's Minds when you talk about the homelessness crisis, you know, because I feel like for a lot of people that would be preferable, you know. They're like they just sort of like don't want to see it, you know, and it feels almost like when you try and talk about these issues, it feels like a us versus them situation instead of feeling like they are also part of Los Angeles.
5: Yeah, and I think that's been kind of the premise of the campaign Mm -hmm. Um, It has been to take away that us versus them feeling. So I think the premise of the campaign has been to say that our city council has incredible powers to respond to this crisis. And at every moment where they could have been responding to the crisis with empathy and with effective measures, they have chosen to look away from their powers. And so the, th- the story I tell when I'm at doors or when I'm in meetings is really to say we failed in providing services effectively to people who are experiencing homelessness. We failed at people who are vulnerable and about to lose their homes, we fail to keep them in their homes. We fail to prevent evictions. We fail to keep rents lower by using our power over the rent stabilization ordinance. We have less than a quarter of the shelter beds that we need for our homeless population. We have 9,000 people sleeping in their cars. And till very recently, it was illegal to sleep in your car in most of the city. We only had 280 legal parking spots for people. So the gap in terms of how we're providing services for people is so immense. And when you go to people and you tell them, we're not even trying to get people off of the streets in ways that are effective and evidence-based. We're not responding to the many vulnerabilities that people have who are experiencing homelessness. Like if people have mental illness or if people have addiction, there are evidence-based ways in which you can do outreach that will effectively get people into housing and into services. We're not doing that in Los Angeles. And so when you tell people that we're failing to address this crisis with the tools that we have at our disposal, I think people want to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. I don't think people want to have it be an us versus them kind of thing. You know, they want to do the thing that is going to work. And they want to do the thing that is in line with their values, not just for LA, but for America, you know, they want to be compassionate. They want to be evidence based, as long as they know that that is also going to help address homelessness and to get people off the streets. And so I think what we're doing is really giving people an option that is different from us versus them. It's like all of us together and like, let's make this better together. And people
4: are. They they grasp onto that. They want
1: that. Yeah.
4: Once you feel like you have mitigated the stigma about being a homeless person here in L.A., what are some proactive programs that you and your campaign could initiate? To help folks? To help people and, le- and lessen the housing crisis.
5: Yeah, so right now the way we deliver services to people is not that effectively done. So what I'm suggesting is a set of community access centers Where you can have caseworkers and mental health service workers who are housed there, who know every person experiencing homelessness in the neighborhood by name, who can develop relationships of trust with people and actually get people into services and get them into housing over time. Right now, our system is not designed to develop those relationships of trust at all. It's like an outreach worker comes, they'll leave, and then they may not come again for months. And most of the time when an outreach worker comes out, it's during the context of a sweep, a cleanup. And so the LAPD is there, you have a sanitation worker who's there, and then you have an outreach worker who's like, do you want services? And obviously the person experiencing homelessness is going to be like, no, no, I just want to save what I can from this cleanup. You know what I mean? Um, So I think you can transform how you deliver services in ways that are really effective. Uh, So that's one thing that I've talked about a lot on the campaign
4: trail. And I just clocked that you said this, and I want to know and apologize. People experiencing homelessness— is the proper way to speak about that, and I'm sorry that I just. Oh said. no, th- I think yeah. I, f- I feel like um, we've decided right that saying homeless people is, I think slightly uh, slightly A. yeah, slightly <laughs> maybe I sound offensive.
5: <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, doesn't have to be the yeah. defining aspect of who they are. Yeah, right?
4: yeah, 100. I'm with yeah. you. I just wanted to acknowledge yeah. that.
0: Yeah, um, in the midst of this um, election, too, um, are there some other initiative issues on the ballot that you think we should really be caring about?
5: Um, I think people should definitely be voting yes on measure R,
0: mm-hmm.
5: which is our um, measure to increase accountability for the sheriff's department. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that's a really important thing to watch out for. There's a very exciting DA race happening in in L.A. I don't know if you guys have talked about that on the show.
0: We have not. Mm -mm. Yeah.
5: Um, But I think there's an opportunity to bring in someone who is uh, focused on criminal justice reform. So I think there's a big opportunity right now to vote out the incumbent, who's uh, this woman named Jackie Lacey. Mm -hmm. Um, There's two candidates running against her who are both reformers. And I think it's a very exciting race.
3: Yeah. A uh, basic, perhaps even lame question, but I would love to hear you answer. What's your favorite thing about L.A.?
5: I would say the diversity of the food. Like, I feel like the food here is the best I've eaten in any city yeah. I've ever visited. Do you have a, a specific place? Oh, so many places. Yeah. yeah. But every uh, every other weekend or like every three, not since the campaign has, been started, has started, but uh, my kids and I and my husband go out to the San Gabriel Valley and mm-hmm. we eat Chinese food.
0: Mm, I love going there uh, for dim sum. I really enjoy just sort of being a part of this city, you know, and I've been here for nine years at this point. And I feel like each year you sort of learn more things about the place that we live, you know, and obviously, you know, there's there's movies and like the Hollywood sort of industry, you know, but I feel like there's so much more to Los Angeles that um, more people should get excited for mm-hmm. um, so for we're sure. really excited that you are trying to make it better yeah, yeah.
3: and it's really excited to get acquainted with exactly those things through observing your campaign mm-hmm. we, truly I really enjoy oh. reading where you come from and your ideas for the future are so inspirational and rad thank you yeah. Yeah. thank you so much yeah. Yeah.
5: I'm so grateful for being able to be on the show it's so great yeah. a huge fan yeah, oh I'm thank so. you so
3: much <laughs> oh, <my
4: gosh>.
1: <laughs> 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 a listener <laughs> <laughs> a Listener, <laughs> 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 we're uh, in front of you on Tuesday yes <laughs> yeah. yes
0: Los Angeles good Go out and vote for Nithia on Tuesday, March 3rd. Mm -hmm. Anyway, when we're back, keep it. Mm -hmm. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. As usual, Mm -hmm. it's keep it.
4: My keep it this week. Goes to Lena Waite's character design in the new Pixar movie Onward that's coming out in March. You guys probably know Lena Waite from Master of None and creating Queen and Slim and posing like a light skinned nigga in every single red carpet that she's ever been to. But in this movie, she voices a character that is a cyclops lesbian police officer. Just a purple. A purple thing. Got it. I got it. The exciting thing about this though is she is the first openly gay character in a movie. I mean, there's been like closeted gay characters. Like i Spinelli was gay for sure in recess. <laughs> that's hundred uh, Eeyore, Eeyore, was probably gay.
3: Oh, interesting. Definitely. I, I always kinda of thought maybe Tigger was.
4: Ooh. Mm. Is that why he was jumping around? A all
3: sprunginess? The time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
4: he's too jaunty. It, like that's def that's like. The gay heterosexual
3: thing. community is rarely yeah. You know what
4: I mean? Mm-hmm.
0: I think Uncle Remus and Songs of the South was just oh, dicking goodness. down everybody. <laughs> 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 Moving right along.
4: Gross. Okay. So if you've looked at this character, which and I saw they took the photo of the character, and then they put it next to Lena Waithe wearing a purple suit, which is the most disrespectful thing ever, because this character is hideous. This character is so... Ugly and like for years, we've been begging for representation. And it's like, not like this. Like, this is not the way that I wanted it. I wanted like Tessa Thompson, maybe like her wand is a strap on or something like that. You know, it can still be magical and cute. And maybe that's not for the kids. A strap
0: on wand.
3: <laughs> you were hoping for a Disney collaboration yeah. with Vivid Entertainment. Yes,
4: yeah. Pornhub and Disney and Pixar can get together and make something. But yeah, that's just, and that's coming out in March. And we'll have to see and hear Lena Waite doing what Lena Waithe does, and yeah, so that's my keep it. Just change the character. It's too late, but change the character.
0: What's interesting to me is I could see why Lena would want to do this. I mean, it's very exciting, I obviously, to have the first openly gay Disney character, but I don't know. Yes, the, the fact that it's a Cyclops unicorn, it sort of feels like... Princess and the Frog, right? You mm-hmm. know, when mm-hmm. Tiana was just a frog in the entire movie. Uh, and this idea that we can get kids to care about diversity through, I don't know, B- aliens and like, yeah. unicorns and things, instead of actually writing some real diversity into their films.
4: Also, they made her purple. She's a whole <laughs> black person, and she's a purple character. And you just made Queen and Slim, and now you're playing a cop. It's just a funny, it's just a funny, funny world that Lena's existing in right now. (laughs) What is Onward about? It's about two elf brothers, and then they try and conjure up their father, and they only... Like get half of his body and then it's the struggle to find the rest of his body, I believe. I've
0: seen the trailer for it. Is it cute? Yeah, it, it, it looks cute enough. I, I don't know. I feel like I really enjoy kids movies when I watch them and sometimes they can bring me to tears. Yes, but, you know I love a kids movie. But the process of watching a trailer for a kids movie is always very grating because it's always <laughs> the worst parts of the movie and... Or the broadest parts. The or... broadest yeah. parts with like the, the jokes that are very current that might yeah. not even make it in the movie and the then songs that also won't be in the movie that are just for the trailer like current pop songs to get kids really excited and so like trailers for like minions and things I was like what the fuck is this shit (laughs) but I love minions and the Despicable Me movies you would not know that from the trailers
3: I respect that yes they're good movies Uh, minions Sandra Bullock is a villain I do wish we had that more often
0: yeah you know well speed
3: (laughs) oh you felt she was the villain in that I know she was trying to crash that bus okay (laughs) Oh, you were reading her intention. Okay. Yes, yes. I was, I was, I want the Ryan Murphy gritty reboot
0: about that. Yeah. It was her.
4: Or The Blind Side.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, that's (laughs) true. True enough. She She always plays She was a villain in The Blind Side. Yeah. We get it, White Woman. (laughs) (laughs) The original title of the movie, We Get It. (laughs) We Get (laughs) It. Lewis, what is your keep it this week?
3: I apologize that I have to bring this up, but it was so baffling, as is often the case with Trump quotes, but. Keep it to Trump's, I'll call it, comments about the Academy Awards, (laughs) in which he brought up the, the wonderful movie Parasite, winning Best Picture, and tried to articulate something along the lines of, can you believe this won? It's a foreign movie. Like He tried to coalesce that into a point and came up with nothing. First of all, let's just say Trump says a lot of bullshit all the time. It seems like we don't have enough time for any of it, and we shouldn't spend our time on it in certain ways. That said... I forget sometimes that he throws these rallies for himself and it makes me realize the point of his presidency is not only to get people to applaud him all the time, but to kind of think he's funny all the time. Yeah. That's like, mm-hmm. I think, a major part of the Jones he has. Like that's a part of the power he is obsessed with. And this like ersatz stand up he is doing <laughs> <laughs> that is like free of punchlines, free of. Uh, uh, of endings of jokes you know it's it's lots of ellipses in between groups of words is could he what, he of, g- what he delivers good use of ersatz yeah. oh thanks thanks i'm proud yeah i learned that <laughs> word from the limiting snicket books as a kid you are um, just the most brilliant person i know <laughs> <laughs> so he complains about parasite winning best picture and then he says and this is as close to a transcript as we can get sorry if it doesn't make sense Let's get Gone with the Wind. Can we get Gone with the Wind back, please? Sunset Boulevard, so many great movies. The winner is from South Korea. I thought it was Best Foreign Film, right? Best Foreign Movie. No, did this ever happen before?
4: He speaks in crossword puzzle clues. (laughs) That's how he (laughs) talks. Or,
3: like, ransom notes. First of all, can we get (laughs) Gone with the Wind back? It's not gone anywhere. It's very famous. (laughs) But here's my question. He said that to that crowd, hoping for, I guess, like, a wild response. Do you think, one, people watch Gone with the Wind anymore?
0: No. I don't think people watch it. I think that we've sort of bygone the era. Maybe, like, our parents or like, aunts and something would be like, oh, they loved Gone with the Wind as a kid and maybe they have rewatched it. But I don't think anyone's like sitting down and being like, I need to watch this movie where Rhett Butler is basically <laughs> raping Scarlett O'Hara into submission. Or yeah, Scarlett's slapping Prissy yes. or whatever. But it's such a
3: weird movie to bring up in a band people together because it's a movie about a brat from the South who basically is seeking her virtue and doesn't get it.
0: Well, what you forget is that Gone with the Wind is largely just this bastion for, you know, the South will rise again. You know, it's, it's the easiest movie besides Birth of a Nation to bring up to rally races together because people protested Gone with the Wind since its inception. And I think that movie is just sort of... Um, an easy dog whistle of here's a movie about white people in the South that people don't like because it's racist. And if we bring up Gone with the Wind, ooh, it's dangerous.
3: Correct. Which is just very interesting to me because the movie, while it has problems we've discussed uh, before in this podcast, it's about a brat from the South. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's interesting what he thinks people think it is. And I have no guesses to what he actually thinks is in that movie. <laughs> Secondly, he brings up Sunset Boulevard. First of all, Great choice. Love it. <laughs> John Lovett loves the mention of that I love movie. Sunset Boulevard. Um, but in the case of this, talking about Best Picture, not to be the Oscars brat, this did not win Best Picture. It certainly did mm-hmm. not. It, it lost to All About Eve. It is, in fact, barely an Oscar-winning movie. It won a screenplay Oscar, but like Best Actress didn't go to uh, Gloria Swanson, it went to uh, Judy Holiday and Born Yesterday that year, one of the great comic performances. So it's just stream of conscious coming up with movies that seem old is mm-hmm. the, the train of thought here. We have two alumni from Gone with the Wind and... Sunset Boulevard, still with us. We have Olivia de Havilland, was mm-hmm. 103 years old, recently was suing Ryan Murphy, which I found very funny. <laughs> still with us. We also have Nancy Olson, who was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar in 1950 for Sunset Boulevard. She plays the kind of budding screenwriter. She's in her 90s. She is still doing Q&As for Sunset Boulevard. Can these two women come together and issue a joint statement against this <clears throat> fucking bullshit? I mean, it would make my life personally.
1: <laughs>
3: and I'm not saying it would get him to shut up, but it would give a lot of... Uh, necessary life into this
0: senseless situation. My <laughs> favorite thing about the audience response, to is I, I, the Gone with the Wind does work as a dog whistle because they're like, yeah, what happened to Gone with the Wind? Like, we want that. Oddly enough, I don't think any of them would celebrate about, like, Green Book, right? I Even guess. though that's yeah. supposed to be a movie that placates white people. Uh, as soon as he bitches Sunset Boulevard, like, the cheering sort of right, dim, <laughs> it's like, why are you bringing up this faggot shit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sunset Boulevard, we're not talking about that.
3: Also, you think Gloria Swanson would have been a fan of you, sweetie?
0: Yeah. Not a chance, bitch. Well, he also, in the speech, sort of uh, makes fun of Brad Pitt, because Brad Pitt said some mean things about him in his Oscar speech. It's like, I constantly forget that Trump prior to running for president, was obsessed with celebrities and constantly tweeted about them. You remember his obsession with Kristen Stewart? Yes. Just like constantly talking about how she was cheating on Rob Pattison and like he could do better than her. Like pathetic, gossipy comments about celebrities. Yeah, and like Celebrity Apprentice was all about him hanging out with celebrities and having Bragging he knew
3: celebrities. Yes, and And having
0: like that monster Mike Bloomberg on a show. (laughs) Uh, There was a recent clip of like him, Bloomberg, Don Jr., Ivanka. uh, The new Mount Rushmore, right? Yeah, it's like all of them. Omarosa, like all of them in one scene on The Celebrity Apprentice while people were like selling water on the street or something. It's truly insane thinking about that show and its existence and the fact that I watched it every week. (laughs) Um, Did he think he can get people to like really... Rile some hate towards
3: Brad Pitt, by the way. I think right. he's a pretty benign celebrity altogether. Right.
0: And I feel like the thing is that stuff is never coming from him being actually mad at Brad Pitt. It's just him feeling like he used to be a celebrity, you mm-hmm. know? And I think he's still like sad that he's not one and that now they all hate him. You know, you think he thought that. You know, he would always sort of exist in this world where, like, celebrities would want to suck up to him, want to be around him. And that did happen for years. But now that he decided to run for president and prove that he's really a racist demon, no one wants anything to do with him. And it's like he only has these fucking rallies where these people come to praise him. That is truly the thing that I am waiting for to go away when he is out of office. It's just like the normalization of him having these support rallies every it seems like every goddamn day no we're seeing something from one of these rallies, these gigantic five-year-old birthday parties it's like they will go away when he is not president because who needs to do that right no it's a, he's an, never in the white house it's an extreme waste of time yes and money uh, speaking of wastes of money <laughs> my keep it this week is to mike bloomberg oh you don't say yeah fair enough uh Who's who's still running for president. I noticed. Even though um, he was murdered by Elizabeth Warren. That's true. Yeah. Uh, I guess his ghost wants revenge. (laughs) Michael (laughs) Booneberg. Michael Booneberg. Hitting the debate stage this week. Yeah, she Uh, all but threw a javelin into him. (laughs) Like, what's it going to take? The Scooby-Doo kids to unmask him? He has
4: to unzip himself, and it's a whole other person inside. It's him
0: underneath himself, <laughs> yeah, uh, like a Liz, Russian
4: doll. I mean, just Michael Bloomberg's.
0: Liz Warren does give you that Velma energy, yes. Yeah. But this week, Bloomberg sent out one of the saddest tweet threads I have ever seen <laughs> from a Democratic candidate <laughs> this cycle, and I this am including. Century. I am including Pete Buttigieg's um, insane tweet thread last week about turning on lights in gymnasiums and turning on lights in cities and sure. Okay. uh, Oh yes. I called that. If you give a moderate a cookie. Yes. Yes, I was like, okay, F Scott Fitzgerald. I get it. Um, Wrap the book up.
1: (laughs) Wrap the book up.
0: When does Daisy die? Um, But Bloomberg started tweeting about the quote vandalism that's been happening at Bloomberg campaign offices across the nation. First of all, <laughs> if you are vandalizing Bloomberg offices across the nation, hello, let's celebrate that. <laughs> he has the money to, re- to fix it, so yeah. go ahead and do it. Um, but also, so much of the vandalism looks like fake vandalism that was done by Bloomberg staff, particularly one of the offices in Flint, Michigan, which has... A sign, a cardboard sign with Eat the Rich painted on it. Right. The cardboard sign is put on the window of the campaign office. No one spray painted Eat the Rich on the actual office. They spray painted Eat the Rich on a sign and put the sign on a the window. They left. That's like, not vandalism. They left like a <laughs> birthday card that says Eat the Rich on it near yeah. the building.
4: That's a scavenger hunt. That's also, not... <laughs> he,
0: he tweeted out this out. Eat the rich. Our office in Flint, Michigan. America deserves better. Bitch, Flint deserves better. (laughs) Are you complaining about someone putting a sign (laughs) on your office in Flint when Flint does not have clean fucking water? He is spending more money probably in Flint alone than it would cost for him to fix the pipes in Flint. Maybe if he were a person with a brain with a heart, with some courage. Let's just do the whole Wizard of Oz Sure, yeah. Um, Ruby slippers, yeah. He would realize that like maybe the way to become president and get people to actually like you and not vandalize your offices would be to do good things. I mean, people would probably vote for him in Flint if he fixed the water there instead of having campaign staffers wander around and do what? say America will be better if you vote for him. I really just can't get over
3: the money spent. I mean, just easily $500 million already. It's just so staggering and
0: so, so depressing. Right. I mean, like, and he spent $3 million to elect Governor Rick Snyder, you know? So it's like he has spent so much money on bullshit things and evil things there's that recent clip of him like at a dinner talking about how Elizabeth Warren is scary and um, about how like he was walking back his Obama um, support, too. I'm just like, no one likes you. Have one cool mm-hmm. thing. No one likes you. <laughs> no one. one likes your offices. No one likes your campaign shirt. He it says, Bloom hideous. 2020, <laughs> Troy Sivan <laughs> is upset. Rachel Bloom (laughs) is fashioning a weapon.
3: (laughs) He looked like he was on that stage because he had won a radio contest or something. (laughs) Not even at the beginning of a good point. I just had never seen anything like that. I mean, like, I don't like tuning into the debates as if there's some sort of pay-per-view event where I'm, like, waving my arms in the air, like I'm watching a bullfight or something. But how could you not when that loser was so out of touch... And she was so ready at every turn. Like, imagine wanting to challenge Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders it sh- and being him.
0: It's so crazy how he thinks he can compete and how he thinks he can talk over them. And it really just drove home the point that he is really trying to buy the election because he brought no energy to the stage. He, like, mm-hmm. he, he might as well have not even been there. And then canceling its town hall before this week's debate. It's like he's not willing to even participate at all. So what's the point? He's not even contesting in states that are having primaries and caucuses. So what is the fucking point? Cancel culture. If we could focus all of it right now on just him, like let's let everyone else go. Like
3: like <laughs> Harvey's in the pen at the moment. Let's just like center it right there. <laughs>
0: The cancel culture bees are swarming. Yeah. And we'll say, that one. And by the cancel culture bees, I do mean Beehive members on social media. <laughs> Beehive, if you're listening, attack Bloomberg. I hear he said, Formation is the worst song he's ever heard. He thinks the album 4 is overrated. Ooh. How about that? Ugh, ah. Uh. Now I want to go vandalize See? a Bloomberg office. You have to get the message <laughs> out. I'm just going to go spray paint a bee on the yeah. <laughs> uh Well, that's our show this week. Uh, thank you again to Ryan Johnson for being here. Uh, and thank you to Nithya Raman for being for here Nithya. as well. Vote for her and keep your knives out. Take your knives to the polling place for Nithia. Are you going to retire? Please don't do that. Please right. don't do that. Actually, <laughs> yeah. you, would, you would be arrested. Yeah.
4: <laughs> Are you going to retire? Knives out now. Yeah. It's time.
0: Yeah, I th- I th- I think that's it. First time I've <laughs> exhaled in months. Too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well.
4: Until the sequel. Until the sequel. <laughs> yeah, and then...
0: then I'm back, baby.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Keep it is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline, like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian for filming and editing our video content every week.